John chapter 10, verses 35-36, but, but uh, before we get there, uh, I want to thank you for praying this week uh, during the uh, Florida Baptist Evangelism Conference. You never know what you're going to uh, get into or what's going to end up happening, and so uh, I got there and I preached uh, Monday night, and uh, Ted Trailer. Uh, who's pastor of Olive Baptist Church in Pensacola, preached after me. And then Larry Wynn, who for 33 years was pastor of the Hebron Baptist Church in Tukula, which started out at a trailer park and ended up running about 10,000, uh, was preaching before me on Tuesday morning. So we're in the pastor's office, we're in Michael Lewis's office, uh, just before the service starts. And I never do this. I just never do this. And I said to Larry, I said, Larry, what are you preaching on this morning? He said, Matthew chapter 9. And I said, which part? And he said, you know, what Jesus saw the multitude and he was moved with compassion. And, and he said, pray the Lord of the harvest that he'll send labor. I said, Larry, that's what I'm preaching on. He said, I claimed it first. <laughs> and so we go from there, walk into the service and I'm sitting there realizing that I've spent all this time studying for this message that I'm not about to preach. And i got to come up with something else. And so I would, there was no way I was going to get in there and have people walk out saying, well, his message was a little better than his message on that. I liked his points better than that point. Because I said, what are your points? He said, well, I'm talking about prayer, compassion, and evangelism. He said, what are your points? I said, prayer, compassion, and evangelism. <laughs> and we didn't steal them from each other. We just That's just what the text says. And so... I just decided to do something different. So while he was preaching, he kept looking over at me with this snarly look on his face, <laughs> like, uh, you're in the trap, bud, not me. And uh, I had to come up with another message while he was preaching, which reminds me to always be ready in season and out of season. Uh, and I was glad I took a few more options with me uh, that day. I don't know if what I said was any good, but at least it was different than what Larry said. So, but I do appreciate you praying uh, for that uh, for that conference. Uh, the Lord used it in a great way, and and it was a great time to uh, just see what God was doing in some churches there, and what some men and women wanted God to do uh, in their churches. John chapter ten, verses thirty-five and thirty-six, and this is an I am saying where Jesus draws a line in the sand. Now his other sayings are obviously a fulfillment of uh, prophecies. They're a designation of him in, as Messiah. But boy, this one they really resented. I mean, the, the educated religious leaders of the day resented this redneck from Galilee with no degrees, with no official formal pharisaical training coming and telling them what God had to say. Uh, it, it, was a, uh, it was a slap at them that God could take somebody from Bethlehem, born in Bethlehem, a town that nobody really thought about, and from Galilee up in the hill country, from a redneck area with no stop signs, no traffic lights, and, and not much education, and use him, that God would actually use him, was an offense to the Pharisees. 
Uh, it was an offense to people. If you read newspaper articles about D.L. Moody in, in his heyday, a man with a sixth grade education that slaughtered more of the king's English than he ever understood, uh, but God used him and hundreds of thousands of people came to Christ. In fact, it's probably estimated that a million people came to Christ under D.L. Moody's ministry, and, and that included some of the greatest work he did was in England, where he was considered uncouth. But God was on him. Uh, Vance Havner, who never finished his sophomore year in college, but God called him into ministry when he was 12 years old, preached his first sermon when he was 12 years old. People made fun of him. They called him the boy preacher. They said it would never last. They said he was just a kid that, you know, thought it would be cool to preach. And, and 65 years later, later, he said, well, I think it's still working. You know, it's amazing what God uses. God's not impressed with our degrees and with our uh, perfunctory things that we go through in our denomination and other denominations. What God's always looking for is an available person that he can fill with his spirit and fill with the knowledge of his word that can be used by him. That's what God's looking for. Uh, I, I get calls from churches and they're looking for pastors and, uh, and they say, well, I, you know, here's what we, we want. This is how many we run. And they, they never say, we're a church that's run off the last three preachers. They never tell you that. What they always say is, you know, we're a good church. We had few issues with the last pastor. But we're a good church. Now, well, what are you looking for? Well, we'd like to get a guy with a, with a seminary degree. And, and they start giving all the qualifications of what they want. They never say, we'd like a man full of the Holy Spirit, a man of the Word, and a man of prayer. All they want is something that looks good on a resume. Can I tell you, anybody can make up a resume. But only God can make a life. And Jesus was offensive to these Pharisees who had all their robes and all their degrees and had the little bells tied around them and everything else. I mean, they could strut with the best of them, but they didn't know God. So I want you to look at the setting of these verses, and let's back up to verse 22. At that time, the Feast of the Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter. And Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. The Jews then gathered around him and were saying to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they testify of me. But you do not believe because you are not my sheep. Now, the setting is the Feast of Dedication, or the Feast of Lights, or as we would probably be more familiar with Hanukkah. Uh, this was a celebration of the restoration of the temple in 164 B.C. after it had been desecrated by the Romans. And so this was a great celebration. It happens around the time when we celebrate Christmas. And, and this Feast of Dedication is going on. It's cold. Uh, it's the rainy season in Israel during that time. It could have been rainy or misty, could have even been snowing around that time. And they're gathered on the Temple Mount around the portico of Solomon. And here they are, the religious leaders in the shadow of the temple where God was being worshipped with God standing in front of them. And they said, we don't believe you are who you say you are. Imagine the audacity 
of people to say they are learned and educated in the things of God, but they don't even see God when he's standing right in front of them. Here's a confrontation, and they, they are like all religious moralists. Uh, they love their rules and they love their laws, but they do not love God. And, and there's a confusion sometimes, especially in our country, which is very similar to what happens in Israel and happened in Israel through history. They considered national loyalty to be the same as worshiping God. And national loyalty is not the same as worshiping God. We have people in our country that consider patriotism as a sign that you're a Christian. That has nothing to do with being a Christian. Patriotism and God-fearing are two different things. And so in verse 24, they're dogging Jesus. I mean, they want a showdown. And they're thinking, here's this hick preacher with a bunch of ragtag followers that have entered our ground they're on our turf, and we're going to take him down. I mean, you've got to understand this. Every time you see the Pharisees in the gospel, they have one goal, to shame, to dismiss, to refute Jesus Christ for who he said he was. The ones that should have known he was the fulfillment. And so it says they gathered around, verse 24 says they gathered around. The word means to close in or encircle. I mean, they are all around every side of Jesus at this point. It's the same word that is used in Luke chapter 21 and verse 20. There Jesus said, one day Jerusalem will be surrounded by armies and the desolation would be near. So, I mean, they're pressed in. This is like a siege mentality. We're going to drive him out. So that's the setting. At this point, Jesus is near the end of his public ministry. In fact, there's very little else that will be recorded in the Gospel of John that is a part of the public ministry of Jesus. He will begin to speak only to his disciples. He had avoided the traps of those who wanted him to be a political messiah, get on a white horse, gather an army, and ride in and deliver them from Rome. He had avoided uh, and refused to do miracles for miracles' sake, he was a, one who had opened up with his claims about being the Son of God. He had openly demanded loyalty to himself and to the words that he had spoken. He had healed the sick, given sight to the blind, done many other miracles that aren't even recorded in clear fulfillment of the prophecies concerning Messiah, and yet they are encircling him to trap him and to try to accuse him of blasphemy. They would not accept. They, and what they say is, well, you hadn't taught us enough. You haven't said enough. By the way, let's just take that into modern day. If anybody's ever heard John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. They've heard enough. They've heard enough. They'll not be able to stand before God and say, I didn't know. You didn't tell me. It was beyond me finding out. And, and so here's Jesus in this setting. And then look at the signs and the signals. And, and because what they're doing when they say, we need to know. You, you need to tell us more. What they're doing is they're blaming Jesus for their unbelief. They're saying, Jesus, we might believe, but you haven't given us enough evidence. I mean, how much more evidence do you need? I mean, the only thing left is the raising of the dead in chapter 11 of Lazarus. He's 
walked on the water. He's done all these works. And they, they preface their complaint with a question, how long will you keep us in suspense? Now, I just got to tell you, if I read the first nine chapters of John, I'm not in suspense. I'm, I'm fully aware something's going on here. And this is somebody different from all the religious teachers that are going around in the land. And so in verses 25 through 42, he reminds them of things that he said and of works that he did. So let's look at his words. First of all, by his words. Now, let's just walk through this for a minute, and you can just write down and look at it later. But you remember in John chapter 5, he answered the Jews by claiming to be equal to God and by forgiving sin. Now, in John 5, when he claims to forgive sin, that is a direct claim to deity because you know only God can forgive sin. That's a direct claim to deity. So he said, I told you in John 5, John 6, 29, Jesus said, this is the work of God that you believe in him who he sent. Now, he was talking about himself in John 6, 29, and if they didn't believe he was sent from God, then he was also implying in that you haven't been sent from God because you're not doing the work of God. You haven't been sent from God. In John chapter 8, the Pharisees jumped him and accused him, and he started bearing witness of himself, and he said, you don't know me or my father, John 8. In verse 18. So by his words, he had clearly declared himself as Messiah. But they say, how long are you going to keep us in suspense? When are you going to tell us who you are? Now he does it by his works. And let me just walk through the gospel of John. John chapter 2, he turns water into wine at a wedding. In John chapter 2, he drives the money changers out of the temple. In John chapter 4, he shares the gospel with the woman of Samaria, she goes and tells her friends, and many believe is the most successful evangelistic meeting that Jesus ever had while he was on this earth. In John chapter 4, he healed the nobleman's son in Cana of Galilee. In John chapter 5, he healed the invalid at the pool. In John chapter 6, he fed the 5,000. In John 6, he walked on the water. In John 8, he rebuked the Pharisees. And in John 9, he healed the blind man. I mean, what more has a guy got to do to get a, some attention? And they said, we haven't heard enough and we haven't seen enough. Hey, just take one of those miracles in John's gospel. If somebody did it in America today, it would be on the news. And now remember, they've been following him around. They have seen all of this. They have heard all of this. The Pharisees were listening at the Sermon on the Mount. The Pharisees were listening in all the things that he was saying about himself. The Pharisees were listening and watching when he healed these people, when they had heard the stories. Had you not, you know, Jesus is saying to them, didn't you hear? You may not have been with me when I was in Samaria, but you had to have heard what happened when the woman at the well found deliverance in my name. Surely you heard about it. But they're saying, we don't have enough. And Jesus says to them, I told you and I've shown you. And the reason you don't get it is you're not my sheep. Now, I want you to think about what Jesus just said. Jesus just said to people that were more religious than the most religious person in America you could meet. They had religion down pat. 
He just said, I've told you and I've shown you, and the reason you don't get it is because you're not my sheep and you don't know my father. That's a pretty strong statement. You see, Jesus would have never preached anybody into heaven that wasn't going there. He, he wouldn't have said they're a good person, so they're going to get to heaven. Or as our former president, one of our former presidents said in a recent interview, you can go to Baptist Press and look it up. As our, one of our former presidents said in a recent interview, yes, God is a judge, but he won't judge when we get there. He's just going to wipe it all off. Well, if God doesn't judge for people who reject his son, then the greatest injustice that has ever happened on this planet was killing the only innocent man that ever walked the planet. God did judge. He judged at the cross. He judged our sin at the cross. And if we don't accept the judgment that was paid for our sin at the cross, then we will accept the judgment on our own lives for rejecting the cross. It's not the miracles of Jesus that save us. It's not even the words of Jesus. It is the life of Jesus laid down for us that saves us. But the Pharisees said, well, we got to know more. So then he goes to the Son of God. Now, some of you are thinking, man, he's flying through this. We're going to get out quick. Not so fast, my friend. <laughs> this is the long part of the message. So Jesus, having said these things and having done these things, Rather than repenting, they get mad at him. They get ticked off. They get angry. You see, nobody hates God like religious people. Now, you think atheists hate God. Well, see, atheists can't hate God. They don't even believe he's there. <laughs> Verse 31, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him notice that word again this is not the first time they've tried to kill him and Jesus answered them I showed you many good works from the father for which of them are you stoning me what a question man I've done miracles which you oh so you're going to kill me because I healed somebody you're going to kill me because I set somebody free from sin is that what you're going to kill which one are you going to kill me for you know, which, which one do you think deserves that you have a right to kill me? Although the Ten Commandments says, do not murder. So you think you can murder me for doing good things. Which one is it going to be? I'd, like, I'd just like to know your charge against me. Which one determined your judgment of my life? So he says, of which one are you going to stone me? And the Jews answered him, for a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. And by the way, parenthetically right there, you could write, guilty as charged. He's man and he's God. You being a man, yes I am. Claim to be God, yes I am. <laughs> That's who I am. Now verse 36. Do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world... You are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God. If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe in me. But if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works so that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. 
Jesus said, I've done everything I need to do for you to believe in me. If you don't believe what I say, look at what I do. If you don't believe what I do, look at what I say. I'm in the Father, and the Father is in me. Now, the, the Pharisees asked for a, a straight answer, and they got it, but they didn't like it. They rejected it. He said, the Father is in me, I'm in the Father. That is a clear statement of his deity. Now, by that statement in uh, John, 30, uh, John 10, 38, by that statement, write John 6 and John 8, because he's already made a statement that he and the Father are one in John chapter 6 and in John chapter 8. This is the strongest of those three statements. When he makes this statement that I'm in the Father and, and, and I and the Father and the Father's in me, he, he's saying that we are one in essence. There's a unity in the Godhead. I'm in the Father, the Father's in me. I and the Father, in the Greek, the verb is one word, we are one, neuter. It's a neuter word, so it means is that we're one. There's no distinction between us except he's God the Father, I'm God the Son. We're the same in sum and substance. An easier way to understand it may be this. Jesus was saying to them, the I am of Exodus is the I am of the gospel of John. We're the same God. We're not two different gods. We're the same God. I revealed myself in Exodus when Moses said, what's your name? Tell them I am sent you. Jesus said, I am. Same God. There's not an Old Testament God and a New Testament God. You'll hear people argue that, say, well, I just don't like the God of the Old Testament. He's the same God. He's the same God. He still hates sin. Sin still has to be paid for. Sin still has to be judged. He is the same God. And Jesus says we're the same in essence. Just mark these verses down. Philippians 2.6, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as a thing to be grasped. Colossians 2.9, for in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And that made them furious. They wanted to stone him. They wanted to arrest him. But Jesus slipped out. Now, I always find those stories fascinating. I mean, you, you got to think about this. Jesus is encircled by all these Pharisees. He's on the Temple Mount. There are hundreds, if not, you can fit 100,000 people on the Temple Mount. There are hundreds, if not thousands of people on this Temple Mount, and they've got him boxed in. And he just walks out. Now, how can you not believe in somebody who outnumbered, let's say he's just outnumbered 10,000 to 1. How can you not believe in somebody that gets out without you harming a hair on his head? He just walks out, and he doesn't return until Palm Sunday. The next time he is in Jerusalem will be Palm Sunday. He escapes, he gets out. If you go to the Mount of Precipice in, in Israel and you look down, it is a long fall down there. And they took Jesus out and they drug him out and they were going to throw him off the cliff on the Mount of Precipice and he let them. Now think about it. He let them, and if you go to Israel, you'll see this. He let them drag him for about two miles 
taking him out to this mount where you stand on the edge of these rocks and you look down and, and when you hit the ground, you're dead because it's several hundred yards. And they get him right to the edge and Jesus says, that's it. That's it. I'm through. I've had all of you I'm going to take. And he just walks out through the crowd. Now, how in the world can you have the power to take someone who has surrendered his power at that point and drag him out to the edge of a cliff and about to kill him and finally says, you know what? That's not going to happen today. And he turns around and walks back through the crowd and just gets away. How did that happen on the temple mount? I'll tell you how it happened. He exercised his authority and God stopped him. And even in that moment, they didn't look at, I mean, nobody looked at somebody else and said, you know what? I believe. This guy may be the real deal. We may ought to just think about this a little bit. I don't, I don't know. I, you know, I thought you had him. Well, I thought you had him. Well, I thought all of you guys had him. Well, I thought y'all had him. I thought you had him. How did he get out of here? He got out of here because he must be something more than just a man. He just walked out. Now, I want you to see something here because it's very interesting. One of the reasons why I believe in the inerrancy of Scripture is that there, God never wastes words. I mean, words are there for a reason, and you have to dig sometimes to see them. But, but this wasn't the first time they had taken up stones. It, it says that they, they bore stones or they brought stones. Now, some commentators will say, well, the reason he got away, this is what one commentator says, the reason he got away is they got mad, so they left him, and they went outside the Temple Mount to pick up stones and then came back in so they could stone him. Well, that would explain how he got away. The only problem with that is, is what the Greek word says here. It, it says that they bore stones to kill Jesus. In other words, they brought the stones with them. On their way into, now think about this, on their way into the Temple Mount, they reached down and picked up a rock somewhere along the way, walking in with one intent, not to hear not to get their question answered, not to believe in God. They had one goal. We're going to kill him one way or the other. And so it says they brought stones or they bore stones. Now, mark it down. It's the same word used in John 19, 17, where it says Jesus bore or carried the cross. They picked up stones willingly to kill him. He picked up a cross willingly to die for them. Now, I just got to tell you something. If a, if a group of religious people brought in a bunch of stones and they decided they wanted to kill me, I wouldn't pick up a cross and die for them, but that's the reason I'm just a man and he was the God-man because he died for people that weren't worth dying for. You see, they bore stones, he bore a cross. They bore stones to kill the Son of God, and he bore a cross to pay the price for their sins. And it wouldn't be that many more days before he would pick up the cross and carry it. So there are three declarations of his deity in John chapter 10. Number one, he's the door. He's the door. We've looked at these. Jesus is the door. He's the only way in. And the key is the blood of Jesus. It's the gospel. And so the question you have to ask yourself is, have you entered in that door by faith? 
Have you taken that Jesus is who he says he is, that you can't save yourself, that your good works can't justify you? He's the good shepherd. Have you heard his voice? Have you heard him call your name? And he's the son of God. If he is the door, if he is the good shepherd, if he is the son of God, then in light of that evidence, unbelief is unbelievable. It's hard to imagine that anybody could see this in his time or in ours and hear this and know this and not believe that Jesus is who he said he is. John 20, verse 31, these were written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Colossians 1.15 says he is the image of the invisible God. Hebrews 1.3 says he is the express image of his person. So if a person says, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God, what does that mean? I mean, because you've got a lot of church members. Uh, you know, Billy Graham has been recorded as saying he believes that 80% of church members in America are lost. A.W. Tozer said he believed 90% of church members were lost. I believe that on a typical Sunday morning, I preach to several hundred lost people. And many of them, their names are on the roll of this church. They are religious. They are moralist. They're good people. They do good things, but they've never walked through the door of Jesus for salvation. They walk through a door of good works and good deeds and better than others but have never been broken by their sin and come to repentance. I believe when we have revival, we will have a minimum of two to 300 church members saved. I'm not talking about getting their baptism on the right side of their salvation. I'm talking about church members saved. We have over 900 church members that hadn't been in this church in a year. They're not saved. If they're not in a nursing home, or on a deathbed, or in hospice, and they're not coming, they're not saved. Jesus said, by their fruits you know them. If you have people on your Sunday school roll that never come, let me just tell you something, folks. According to the Word of God, don't get mad at the messenger. I'm just telling you what the Word says. According to the Word of God, by their fruits you know them. They're not saved. And you need to quit praying that they'll get faithful to church and start praying that God will save them. Because they're lost. Because if I'm saved, I want to be around other saved people. And I want to be around the body. And I want to be around the family. And I want to have fellowship. And I want to worship God. And if I don't want to do that, then I've got to ask myself the question, do I even know what it means to be saved? I mean, you become like people you spend time with. And people that are just always trying to find ways to spend time away, probably not saved. You say, well, you can't judge. I can't, but I can judge by fruit. I look at a pear tree, and I know that's a pear. I look at an apple tree, and I know that's an apple. And I look at the fruit of somebody's life, and I can tell you by their fruit. Jesus said, by their fruit, you will know him. If I go by a tree continually and there's no fruit, I can make one assumption. It is not rooted and planted in Jesus Christ. Because if it were, there would be some fruit. Now, sorry if that offends you, but there are going to be a lot of Baptists that are not going to be in heaven. 
There are going to be a lot of Methodists that are not going to be in heaven. There are going to be a lot of Catholics that are not going to be in heaven. There are going to be a lot of Pentecostals that are not going to be in heaven. There are going to be a lot of every denomination that are not going to be in heaven that are religious and good people, but that doesn't get you through the door of heaven. It's only through the blood of Jesus that we get through the door of heaven. So if I say that I believe that Jesus is the Son of God, what does that mean? It means if He is God, He deserves our undivided attention. It's not a casual relationship. It's not a, hey, see you soon. It's, it's our undivided attention. Paul said, this one thing I do. Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not the things that I say? You see, lordship is not just a Sunday morning or a Sunday night or a Wednesday night th deal. Lordship is a lifestyle. He deserves my undivided attention. I report for duty. And, and you, you know, if you've been in the military, even if you're off duty, if if a superior officer walks in, you're on duty. You report. When you're called up, you report. Secondly, if he is God, he deserves our unreserved devotion. Luke chapter 9, let the dead bury the dead. Foxes have holes and places to lay their head, but the Son of Man doesn't have a place to lay his head. Take up your cross and follow me. He who knew no sin became sin for us. He deserves our unreserved devotion. Garibaldi, who was a guerrilla general in Italy in the mid-19th century, was trying to muster an army to take over the country. And he would go around from community to community in Italy and ask for young recruits to join him in the battle for Italy. And often the question was asked, what's in it for us? And some writer recorded these words from Garibaldi. He said, nothing no pay, no position, no quarters. I will offer you hunger, thirst, forced marches, and even death. Let him who loves his country in his heart and not with his lips only follow me. And Garibaldi, with no promise of anything except a love for the country, won the day and won the battle. Unreserved devotion. And then finally, if he is God, then he deserves our unreserved worship. John 15, 11 says, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, that your joy may be made full. John 16, 22, Therefore you too have grief now, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and no one will take your joy away from you. John 17, 13, but now I come to you and these things I speak in the world so that you may have my joy made full in themselves. Adonai Judson, who was a 19th century Baptist missionary to Burma, was called by the Burmese Mr. Glory Face. Because they said his face shined with the glory of God. Even though he was imprisoned, even though there was a time when for months he was hung by his feet upside down, when he had malaria, he lost two wives on the mission field. And all the pain and the suffering, he lost child after child on the mission field. But Judson was called Mr. Glory face. One day a Hindu 
merchant ask another missionary in Burma. He said, what do you put on your face that causes it to shine? And the missionary said, we put nothing on our face to cause it to shine. And the Hindu merchant said, oh, yes, you do, because all you Christians shine. That's joy. All you Christians shine. Let your light so shine before men that they will see your works and glorify your Father who is in heaven.